Indifference elicits no response. Indifference is not a response. Indifference is not a beginning. It is an end. And therefore, indifference is always the friend of the enemy. For it benefits the aggressor, never his victim whose pain is magnified when he or she feels forgotten. Welcome to 10 Minutes on Democracy. That moment of democracy inspiration was Ali Wiesel speaking to the perils of indifference in a speech at the White House on April 12th, 1999. While not the most uplifting rhetoric, I find it inspiring, especially on a week like this one, where we face the ongoing struggle to protect democracy and it's easy to feel dispirited and tired. And I'm reminded that our society has faced bigger challenges before and we must remember that choosing to be indifferent only leads to more suffering. I'm Jason Franklin, Senior Advisor at One for Democracy, and today is Tuesday, November 9th. Moving from 1999 to today, I'm looking back at the tight elections last week that all went a bit more conservative than pollsters expected, plus the underwhelming response to the passage of the infrastructure bill so far and slow legal developments on the insurrection and voting rights suppression. Well, last week when I recorded 10 Minutes on Democracy, Tuesday morning before the elections really kicked into gear, I talked about how we were looking at an incredibly tight set of races in Virginia, which proved to be exactly the case, but everything tipped slightly more towards Republicans and conservatives than expected for what made for a grim night for Democrats across the state. Democrats lost the governorship as well as races for lieutenant governor, attorney general, and probably lost the state house as well, although it could be a tiebreaker if the two races are still very close ahead to automatic recount and flip, although frankly, that's unlikely. Obviously, this has resounding partisan impacts and has left political strategists in the debate that follows every election of what worked, what didn't, and why. In Virginia, though, it's also likely to have some impacts on the function of our democracy that people don't realize. For example, last year, Virginia Democrats passed a constitutional amendment that would permanently end felony disenfranchisement for everyone not in prison. But the legislature would have to pass that constitutional amendment again after this year's elections before it could go to voters. But now Republicans, if they win the state house of delegates as expected, could block its passage by simply refusing to allow a vote. Also, Virginia is one of just two states where legislators directly pick justices for the state Supreme Court, along with South Carolina. Currently, the court has a 5-2 conservative majority, and they could be critical for a lot of voting rights and fair redistricting lawsuits that are moving through the Virginia courts and will in the coming years. Over the next two years, two justices will finish their terms, one on each side of the ideological divide, and new appointments could reshape the court. So in Virginia, both the House of Delegates and the Senate vote together as a unified general assembly when selecting justices. So these last two uncalled races for the state house could determine whether a Republican majority state house could outvote a Democratic controlled Senate and shift the court one way or the other. So I also talked last week about how there was more to focus on than just Virginia. While it's almost a certainty that Democratic Governor Phil Murphy has won a second term in New Jersey, it was far closer than expected at just 2.6% margin, and Democrats lost ground in the state legislature instead of picking up a few seats as they hoped. There are echoes of the big lie dynamics playing out in New Jersey, as six days after the election, 
Assemblyman Citarelli has yet to concede, even though it's almost mathematically impossible for him to win, with only 70,000 mail and provisional ballots yet to be counted, and he's behind by 65,000 votes. His spokespeople are doing this dance, trying to distance themselves from Trump's stop the steal strategy, saying, quote, we're not hearing any credible accounts of fraud or malfeasance. But they're also trying to appease the Republican base by demanding to, quote, see every legal vote counted. So how this continues to play out in New Jersey, but also how it gives us indicators of what may be playing out in the year to come about how Republicans are trying to walk the line between a adherence to Trump's conversation around the stolen election and the big lie versus actually appealing to moderates, something we saw in Virginia and in New Jersey. The last thing I'll note from Tuesday's election was that we also saw a real mix in local races for Democrats, which shows some of the divergent dynamics in different cities between progressives and moderates. We saw more police-friendly or moderate mayors win, including in New York City, in Minneapolis, which also resoundingly defeated a measure to defund the police after unusually high turnout from the city's wealthy white districts tilted the scales. In Buffalo, where establishment Democrats and Republicans united in a write-in campaign for the incumbent mayor over a Democratic Socialist who scored a major upset in the primaries and became the Democratic nominee. And in Atlanta, which will now choose between two police-friendly candidates in a runoff, City Council President Felicia Moore and Councilmember Andre Dickens, who both prioritized crime and public safety in their campaign messages. Um, It wasn't a complete loss for progressives on Tuesday, though, as Minneapolis did pass a charter amendment to authorize rent control, and progressive policies and the strength of community organizing in communities of color led to mayoral wins in Boston, Cleveland, Dearborn, and elsewhere. So I'll be talking about the takeaways from last Tuesday in the weeks to come, but the bottom line points to a severe struggle for Democrats, a fierce debate about whether a more energizing progressive message would motivate voters, versus a moderate message that seemed to fail to motivate on Tuesday in the face of Republican anger and energy, and frankly, how to run when Trump is not on the ballot. These elections also set the stage for, and really accelerated the vote for the historic infrastructure bill, which many commentators have noted could have helped spur Democratic victories if it had been passed sooner and celebrated before the election. Taking questions after its passage, Biden promised Americans will see the infrastructure bill effect probably starting within the next two or three months. But that timeline is likely to prove central to the impacts of the bill on American politics, whether or not it has the same type of impact on the infrastructure. Can it move fast enough to really be seen by the public as something that is important? Even though it was a huge bill that got passed, it has not made waves so far in these first few days and really been overshadowed by other developments. So as a reminder, the final infrastructure plan is estimated to cost $1.2 trillion over eight years. That includes $550 million in new spending. The biggest ticket item was $110 billion for roads, bridges, and other infrastructure fix-ups, followed by $73 billion for electric grid and power system improvements, $66 billion for rail, $65 billion for broadband, $55 billion for water infrastructure, plus other big investments in allocations for environmental remediation, flooding and coastal resiliency, protections against forest fires, modernizing transit, electrical vehicle charging, zero emission buses, and more. But implementing these investments fast and getting the public to see that they're happening because of action by Democratic leaders will now be the challenge for the Biden administration. And to make sure that it 
because it's so big, it doesn't get missed. Sometimes the biggest impacts are hard to take in. Uh, so while there was a pledge also to not vote on the infrastructure bill until the social safety net bill was passed, this is the other big political dynamic within the Democratic Party this week. That agreement was scrapped after progressives got a promise from moderates to vote on the bill two weeks from now once its financing was scored, the week before Thanksgiving, and frankly facing pressure after getting such losses on Tuesday and wanting to pass something right away. But it remains now to be seen in these next couple weeks, will the fears that moderates would dodge the emerging uh, social bill if they didn't have to wait to pass the infrastructure bill end up playing out as real fears or not? So finally, while most attention has been focused this week on the elections, the infrastructure bill, and of course, the continuing debates at COP about climate change, there have also been some developments worth noting on the dynamics of protecting our democracy itself. Important but slow developments. On Thursday, the U.S. Justice Department sued Texas over the state's new voting law, arguing that it violated both the Voting Rights Act by limiting the help that poll workers can provide to voters, and the Civil Rights Act by requiring mail-in ballots to be thrown out if they fail to include a voter's uh, current driver's license number, election ID, or part of a social security number. They also filed a statement of interest, which is a way to show support for another plaintiff's argument for a second lawsuit against Texas that was brought by Latino organizations. And on the congressional front, the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack issued six new subpoenas to Trump campaign staffers and advisors who were associated with the war room that had been set up in the Willard Hotel in the days leading up to January 6th. None of those people would be covered by executive privilege, even if Trump tries to exercise it. So whether they will respond, and if they don't, will they be held in contempt, remains to be seen. And frankly, it's a moment where both these lawsuits and the investigation are examples of the slow grind of the legal system. They'll keep the conversation about the threats to our democracy in the public eye, and they could produce some real shifts, or they could end up undermined by party politics or simply the clock running out on their immediate political impact, leaving them to be asterisks in our history books about actions that had too little impact too late to help protect our democracy. Definitely a wait and see moment, important to keep track of these, but also to realize we are facing very urgent moment right now and whether we actually have the systems designed um, and in place to be able to react as fast and as intensely as needed. So that's all for this week's quick review of democracy developments. Even with the big infrastructure bill passing, it feels like we had a hard week overall. But as I say to donors and advocates all the time, you know, this work is a marathon, not a sprint. And we just have to stay in it, look forward to the work to come. Uh, I'm Jason Franklin. Today is Tuesday, November 9th. Thanks for listening to 10 Minutes on Democracy, and I'll see you next week.